From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. When it comes to property tax relief, voters sent lawmakers back to the drawing board. Ahead of a special session, Governor Jared Polis on immediate and just maybe permanent solutions. A long-term way to keep property taxes reasonable in our state. Plus, a gubernatorial guest star, Utah's Spencer Cox, on how to disagree better. And I read a new kid's book about a school of overachievers with a fifth grade co-host. How did you get in the mindset of a middle schooler? (laughs) I took a class when I was trying to figure out what kind of story I would write. And my instructor at the time said, we write based on our emotional age, which in my case, apparently was 12. I'm Leanne Klassen, and my husband Bob and I are CPR leadership partners. We are very happy to be able to support CPR. The wider reach, the wider coverage of the world, of Washington, of Colorado, and individual communities across various platforms all continues to add to the value of CPR, and it truly is a treasure for our state. Connect your passion for CPR with a gift at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Take two. Lawmakers will try again on property tax relief in a special session tomorrow. Voters were having none of their first attempt. This session comes as Governor Jared Polis, a Democrat, and Utah Republican Governor Spencer Cox join forces. They're touting a concept called Disagree Better. The goal is to reduce animosity in civic life. Governors Polis and Cox spoke with CPR's public affairs editor, Megan Verlee. Governor Polis, let's start with you. The Colorado legislature is beginning a special session on Friday to address property taxes. And this is coming after voters said no, rather emphatically, to Proposition HH, which was put on the ballot by Democrats and backed by you in the spring as the answer to the rising property tax rates. So I'm wondering, now that this is going through a legislative process, in hindsight, is that where these policies should have been all along? Well, I think that uh, Democrats, Republicans, Coloradans agree that we need short-term relief. Um, I I also think that there's a Rubik's Cube of a long-term problem there, and Prop HH was a good-faith effort solving that. Uh, The legislature coming in next week uh, is not going to be able to solve the 10-year picture, the 20-year picture. What they are going to hopefully be able to do is provide immediate relief to homeowners across our state. Um, And the reason that they had to come in early is January is simply too late to do that. So uh, the fundamental issue here, though, is is that Colorado is a great place to live, and as a result, home prices have gone up. Um, The problem uh, is that many people's incomes haven't gone up at the same rate as the value of their homes. And so unless the legislature acts, and I'm confident they will, people could be facing 30, 40, 50 percent increases uh, in their Uh, property taxes uh, next year. And there's a chance to avoid that for a year and then work on what that long-term solution is, what kind of cap is needed. Prop HH had a cap, but maybe it's a different kind of cap, but how we can prevent this from happening again in the future. Well, given that voters have spoken on HH, do you think the legislature should avoid some of the mechanisms that it had that voters have now rejected, like using Tabor refund money to backfill property tax cuts? Well, everything was in HH. So, uh, you know, I mean, everything from making the senior homestead uh, tax exemption portable to cutting property taxes, uh, you, you know, so so that that's all the realm of solutions. It's the same things that are out there. Um, there's Tabor surplus. 
uh, Republicans have said, hey, can we use some of the reserve? We said, yes, we're open to using, you know, 1% of the reserve. Uh, it, it, it's really about figuring out how big the property tax relief is, and we certainly want the bigger the better, how much uh, you then need to share with, with local government. And local government has done very well over this assessment period. And certainly there's areas of our state where perhaps their um, increase in assessments has not kept up with inflation, where they only had 5% value in homes increase. I think everybody, the Republicans, Democrats, feel that, of course, they should be backfilled. They should be not be hurt by a reduction. But areas that had 40 50% windfalls, the voters in those areas didn't necessarily get to vote on that either. And uh, many of these special districts, and, and this is why it's complicated, there's 4,000 special districts that are funded through property tax, uh, everything from fire districts to library districts to you name it. Uh, so again, I, I think in the short term, provide relief. I'm also hopeful that there'll be a uh, blue ribbon uh, bipartisan process that come panel that comes out of this legislature uh, that really, in the spirit of disagree better, can work through the very complicated trade-offs on this issue and come back with thoughtful recommendations around a long-term way to keep property taxes reasonable in our state. Well, to bring in the disagree better concept, I have to say that uh, the reporters I work with who've been asking around about what might happen during the special session are frankly a little worried it could go off the rails. There are hard feelings around HH between Republicans and Democrats, even amongst the Democratic caucus. Are you worried that these disagreements might not be better, that this really could be a uh, vitriolic session? Well, look, uh, elections come and go, and, and, and people have their say, and then it's up to uh, the people who serve to come together around solutions that uh, help uh, reduce the cost of living in Colorado. I think that's a basic value that Republicans and Democrats share. Um, the cost of living has gone up, in many cases, more than the rate of inflation. Uh, there's a broader conversation, and our focus is on reducing the cost of housing, and, and that's a big value and goal of mine during my second term as governor. But property taxes are part of that equation because that increases the cost of living uh, for people in our state. So it doesn't solve the cost of living and housing affordability, but it certainly is, creates a bigger hole to dig out of on making living in Colorado more affordable if property taxes go up too much. I'd like to bring Governor Cox in here um, as we transition to the disagree better idea, uh, but I'm going to do that by staying on housing for a moment. Governor, Utah has its own challenges with housing affordability, and at a press conference in October, you said this about housing and the need for more to be done on the local level. There are some cities out there that think, oh, yeah, everyone else, we're, we're unique, we're different. No, you're not. You're not unique and you're not different. You have to find more supply and you, and you have to do it quicker. In the context of what it means to disagree better, how do you get leaders in your state to row in the same direction on something that is as personal and as high stakes to people as the character of the place they live? Sure. That, that's the, I mean, that's the, the secret of governance, right? It's, it's not just housing, although right now that's one of the biggest issues in both of our, our states. By the way, um, a, a better problem to have than people fleeing your state, are, we live in, both live in states where people want to live. They want to raise their families, but we have to do more. Um, and so we're, we're working on, on a series of, of initiatives with our our, our local cities and towns. Everybody wants the cost of living to come down. Everybody wants their kids and grandkids to be able to live here. A lot of people just don't want 
to see those houses from their front front door, right? The, the kind of the nimbyism that we're seeing. And so this is, we're, we're going to have to change some of those incentives for sure. Um, we're working very closely with our League of Cities and Towns. Um, we're working closely with our developer community, uh, working with the legislature, trying to figure out what, what are the incentives right now? Why are we not seeing these types of homes built? Um, starter homes. That I'm, I'm very focused on starter homes right now. Uh, home ownership has been foundational to the success of our country. It's a way for people to start building that equity. It makes people feel rooted in their communities. They give back the social capital piece of this. Um, we're losing an entire generation of homeowners um, that, that are forced to rent longer and rents are going up. And so we, we know we need more supply and, and we're going to work through this. We are. Uh, I'm, I've just had recent meetings with uh, with some of the leadership of, of our cities and towns. Uh, they heard that quote very loud and clear. It, it definitely got their attention and they're coming up with ideas. And that's what we're, you know, I don't, I don't want to penalize people. Um, I, I want to inspire people, and we're starting to see more of that. Governor Polis, I'll ask you a, a similar question, because obviously land use is a, a chief issue for you right now. Uh, and similarly in Colorado, it's been managed locally, but you've said it's time to take a statewide approach. When you are taking that approach, how do you genuinely ensure that local leaders who disagree about what you want to do feel like they're being heard, feel like they're part of the disagreement productively? Well, you know, I started by having uh, a number of uh, town halls across the state. We had one here in Fort Collins, Pueblo, Grand Junction, Aurora, uh, invited local leaders and many others um, to really convening uh, where we really talked about the future of housing was central in all of them. I mean, we uh, that wasn't seated, but housing came up as a top topic, the cost of housing in, in everywhere we went. I mean, there's other issues too. People talked about water, people talked about education, but I, I mean, it's, it's fair to say that, you know, we're being responsive here in, in trying to make living in Colorado more affordable because that's also what local governments want and, and they understand that. Um, you look, uh, in many ways, it's the same problem Utah faces. The very kind of homes that are the most affordable to buy in the 200s and 300s and 400s, which tend to be smaller, maybe they're accessory dwelling units, maybe they're quadplexes. These are exactly the kind of homes that have not been allowed to be built in close to sufficient numbers for decades. This is not something that's recent. It's like an accumulated deficit of the most affordable kinds of housing, which have actually been the hardest to get allowed to be built in our states. And it's not rocket science. That's just why we are where we are. So something isn't working. So let's just have an authentic, thoughtful conversation about how we change that. So rather, if we if, if we fast forward five years, we don't have a greater deficit of units that are affordable and more expensive units that are further from job centers and towns, but we can make a course correction here and figure out a way where we can have more homes that people can afford to buy, including multifamily, closer to job centers uh, to make life more convenient and lower cost for Coloradans. Governor Cox, you've mentioned that the Disagree Better initiative is not about getting everyone to agree, that would probably have a different name if it was, but about getting them to a place where they don't hate each other. And I'm curious if there's a policy area that you has, have worked on as governor that you can talk about where you feel like that approach succeeded and what the impact was, uh, or one where you tried it and it did not work out? Well, I think I can give you maybe a combination of both. And we just saw it this past legislative session. Obviously, the culture wars are raging across the country. I, I lament that. I, I think there's a better way to do things. We, we worked really hard to try to bridge some of those gaps uh, in a very Republican state, a very conservative state. Um, we, we knew there were going to be a couple issues coming up in our legislative session that were very divisive. One of them was on uh, trans health 
health care for minors. And uh, and so, uh, again, in an effort to try to disagree better, um, I invited uh, the uh, trans youth and their parents and leaders in, in that movement to the governor's mansion together with legislative leadership and uh, the, the bill sponsors who would be running those bills. In, in an effort to bring them in to see each other's humanity, um, there was no agenda. We had some food. We got to know each other. And uh, I, I do think it helped um, during the discussion. Uh, the uh, the debate in Utah, I, I think, was much better than the debate in some other states. There were some changes made to the bill based on that. But but at the end of the day, they were very disappointed that the uh, the bill passed, and they were very angry that the bill passed and, and that I signed it into law. And, and I understand that. At the same time, I have to give credit to um, the, the leaders of the LGBTQ community, Equality Utah and others, who um, didn't take the opportunity to just burn it all down and fundraise off of it and, and call people terrible names. Um, they stay engaged. And so when a second issue came up around conversion therapy, um, there was an effort to reinstate conversion therapy, a, a, a terrible practice that has been very damaging to, to, to um, our LGBTQ community. And uh, there were two very conservative legislators who were, who were trying to bring that back. Um, they, uh, they, they met together for weeks on end. Um, they they kind of locked themselves in a room, tried to figure this out. And, uh, and, and they came out with, with a solution that actually banned conversion therapy permanently in the state of Utah. And uh, it, was, uh, it was voted on unanimously, again, by a very conservative legislature. And I, I think it's, it's just a great, uh, a great example of the way the, in, in the most controversial issues, if we're willing to sit down and have the hard conversations and try to find some sort of common ground, we, we can often come up with solutions. Not always, but sometimes it, it works that way. Well, I think that gets to a big question I have about this effort, which is when you talk about disagreeing better, is it alighting the fact that for many people, the political disagreements in the society over LGBTQ rights, over racial equity, over the climate are literal matters of life and death and and may not be a place where uh, a, a polite disagreement feels possible? We're not just talking about a polite disagreement, right? We're talking about profound disagreement. We're talking about staying true to the things that you believe in. But but I, I, I get that question all of the time. And, and I, I, I love to push back on it because I always say, how's your way working, right? It, it, have you ever changed anybody's mind by attacking them, telling them they're racist or homophobic or wh- whatever? Um, it, it doesn't. It doesn't change anybody's hearts and minds. And 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 again, on this very issue, um, I, I give credit to Troy Williams, uh, who, who's the leader of Equality Utah. We we disagree on lots of things, but but this guy um, actually bought a booth at the Republican State Convention. He showed up in a place where he was not expected to show up. Um, he was told he should not do that. He was told that by Republicans and by Democrats. He was told by his own allies that this was the worst thing possible and he showed up and he engaged with people and uh, and it was transformational it was incredible to watch people who screamed at him hated him who gave him a hug and apologized when they were done discussing like I I, I whenever I hear this I say yeah keep doing it your way and you will get absolutely nowhere but if you want to get somewhere you have to be willing to engage on these topics Governor Polis what are your thoughts on that topic uh, no look I actually agree I mean you know yelling at one another doesn't work disengaging from the process doesn't work. What takes is doubling down on the commitment to have the thoughtful discussions uh, and ask questions. And and maybe there's room that you can find that didn't exist before. And I understand, of course, that uh, you know many people have fear of what the other side is trying to do to them. And I think start with asking the questions is, are you 
actually trying to do this to me? Is that what I'm hearing in, in my own echo chamber? Or is that what you're trying to do? If so, is it all of you? Is it some of you? Is there, why are you trying to do this? I mean, ask these questions uh, and have those discussions because the alternative uh, is scary for the destruction of civil society and, and the cohesion of our country. So I find this a very interesting week to be talking to two elected officials about disagreeing better, because obviously, if you've been watching what goes on is going on in Washington, uh, where things have gotten almost physical among people who disagree with each other or actually have crossed the line into physical conflict. What do you say to people listening to this who say, why are politicians telling me how to disagree better when that is not what we are seeing in our politics? Well, I... I, th- I think you need some politicians to, to be talking about this. And, and I'm, I, I can't thank Governor Jared Polis enough for his willingness to, to go on this journey and, and to have these conversations. Um, yeah, we, we don't represent every politician in the country. And it's precisely because of those things that are happening this week that we need people. Uh, we, we've been told that governors are the last adults in the room when it comes to politics. Obviously, not, not all of us, but I think most of us are trying to do it the right way. And, uh, and people are tired of it. Uh, and and the, the numbers show that. Uh, we have an exhausted majority in this country. They hate where our politics is right now. They're looking for any sign of, of something different, any sign of life. And, uh, and, and we're trying to offer that. Um, that being said, I'm going to screw up a lot. You guys, I, I mean, it's really hard to try to be the face of this when you're. I'm running for re-election next year. Um, I, my my first instinct is to fight. My first instinct. It's it's human nature to do that. Um, but but these virtues that we've held as as Americans and, and as as civil leaders for so long um, are are more important today than ever before. And so I I think and that most people and and I know because we're hearing from them, most people are are just grateful that anybody's willing to have this conversation. Uh, and I've, of course, uh, I don't think Governor Cox and I are under the delusion that somehow governors can can doyce at Mackina solve everything. But we can help play a convenient role through the institution of the National Governors Association, through Governor Cox's work as chair, uh, we're having regional convenings. We're lifting up the work of those who've been toiling in the fields of this issue for years. Um, organizations that I've learned about in the last few days and weeks, like Braver Angels and others that are finding that room for civil dialogue, whether it's on our university campuses, whether it's in the broader community, uh, along with making sure that we can break through on the cultural side to people. I think there's a great hunger among the American people for this message. Uh, governors can add the gravitas uh, uh, and the heft behind this message, but it's also one that really ultimately comes down to each and every one of us in the choices we make in the media we consume, how we live our lives in civil society, and how we disagree. So we've been talking uh, big picture and a bit abstractly, and I want to make it uh, personal for you guys now, because of course neighboring states often have disagreements. The one that I would like you two to talk to each other about right now is the issue of whether more trains carrying oil from the Uinta Basin in Utah should be allowed to travel through Colorado. That's a hot issue in the state, uh, a lot of concern for local leaders in Colorado. I understand you're in favor of the, the new rail traffic. How do you disagree better about an issue like this? Let me start with an even harder one. Which state is better skiing? Yeah. I don't think I'm ever going to be able to convince Governor Cox that Colorado is the best skiing in the country, and I don't think he's going to be able to convince me of anything different You know, I think those are fighting words, but we can start from an area of skiing is important to our Exactly. It's a great, great hobby and great way to be involved, and we support the the global tourism and United States tourism around skiing because the bigger that pot is, the more people are coming to Utah and Colorado to ski. Exactly. Governor's oil train. We are in public radio land, and and our listeners would love to hear you talk about oil trains. 
sure. Um, so, so look, I, I, in this conversation, and we haven't had this conversation directly before, so this is, I, I think, an important first step. Um, I, I think we can start by talking about energy prices and what's happening in, in energy right now. Um, can we get some agreement on that? I, I think we both believe in the importance of, of cleaning up our air, um, the importance of, uh, of climate change and, and decarbonization. Um, at, at the same time, um, just like property taxes in, in Colorado and, and home prices in both of our states, energy prices are, are really hurting our, our citizens right now. And we're hearing that over and over again. We know we're not at a place where we're ready to transition completely yet. Um, oil and gas will continue to play an important role in what we're doing. And can we do that safely? Can we continue to export uh, this, this form of energy in a safe way that protects Coloradans and Utahns? Um, and, uh, and, and that's kind of where I would start the conversation. Uh, both Colorado and Utah are important energy-producing states. In fact, as part of my chair's initiative at the Western Governors Association, I joined Governor Cox in Beaver County, Utah, to visit a geothermal um, energy facility, electric facility there, geothermal. I, my focus was heat beneath our feet, geothermal energy. Very excited about opportunities for geothermal energy across the West. Uh, we have absolutely passed along concerns from local government, mostly centered around the risk of derailments of uh, toxic uh, uh, fuels and local uh, impact uh, because, yeah, this is something that affects Coloradans. Um, I'm sure that, again, it can be viewed through the edge of, at lens of energy future, but there's a lot of fear and worry on the ground in the areas impacted that derailments uh, and contamination could, uh, could hurt the, the quality of life in areas that are directly impacted. And I think that's, again, that's where we start, you know, being curious. So what is it that you're concerned about? Are the fears derailment and, and the potential for, for toxins to be released? Let's start there. Let's talk about how we can we can then figure out how to make it safe for those trains, if that's ever approved, uh, to, to come through those communities without adding to their fear of, of something terrible happening. And I would just add, it's 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 not so much something to be, this in this case, to be worked up between governors. It's at the federal level for decision making. <laughs> exactly. So, yep. I mean, I'm sure that you provided input, we provided input, uh, and I'm comfortable with the process. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've certainly, Senator Bennett, Senator Hickenlooper, uh, Congressman Nagoose, Representative Boebert, they've all let their, you know, concerns be known and provided that appropriate input. We've also passed along input to decision makers. And I think here's, here's a great example. Again, there is a process in place, right? It doesn't mean this may be a zero sum. One of us gets our way and the other one doesn't, right? And, and we'll, you know, we'll go through that process and, and we'll see what happens and then we'll, you know, we'll, we'll challenge that process and accept that process. But what you don't hear is us demonizing each other, like those, you know, those evil Utahns who are trying to bring their, their, you know, their terrible oil into our state. That's, that's not the conversation we're having. So to, to wrap up on that note, Governor Cox, you mentioned on your wife Abby's podcast uh, that you worry that not learning how to disagree better could lead to civil war in this country. And I wonder why you put the stakes that high. Well, look, I, I'm not I'm not a politician who's prone to hyperbole. Um, I you know I'm I'm a generally very optimistic person. Uh, I'm I'm a happy warrior, much much like uh, Governor Polis. But uh, but I, the, these aren't my words. These are the words of experts who study this um, over and over again. People like Rachel Kleinfeld, um, Jonathan Haidt, um, who have all said that we are facing over the the next couple decades the potential for a catastrophic failure of uh, of our democratic institutions. 
solutions. And I, I, I often ask people, how does this end? You know, where does this end, this, this, uh, this train that we're on right now? And it, it either ends um, with us figuring it out and changing, and, and I'm, I'm hopeful we can do that. Again, the numbers show that, that a majority of, of Americans want to change, uh, that pendulum swing, and we'll start to swing back the other way. But, but another way that this ends is with, with people shooting each other. And um, we've seen that before in our, in our country. We heard experts just yesterday from, uh, from, from Harvard, from, from others, uh, from the Constitutional Center, uh, t- tell us that, uh, that, that what we are seeing here um, are, are the worst fears of our founders, um, that what we are seeing here, it's 1850s-like, um, and, and we, c- we cannot sustain this. Um, however bad you think, it's, it's probably worse right now as we're crossing all of these checkpoints. And so, I, 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 you know, there are a lot of people out there using fear to, to divide us. Um, I, I say this, again, they say this because it's real, and I'm hoping it will wake us up in a way and, and help us understand that we, 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 we just have to stop hating our fellow Americans and try to find real solutions to our problems. Governors, we're obviously having this conversation right before Thanksgiving. So I wonder if there's one thing from what you've been advocating that you hope somebody listening to this takes to their Thanksgiving dinner table with their relative that they normally can't even talk to. I think it's look. We many many families have uh, different ideas in 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 their family, and there might be, you know, uh, somebody trying to explain you know non-binary to a great aunt and 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 all and and just show that intellectual curiosity. I mean, I, I think it's not afraid to. Uh, you know, to say, okay, this is how I consider myself. What, what do you, what do you, how do you consider gender? Okay, you say it's male, female. Tell, tell me why. You know, what if I, what if the person doesn't feel comfortable as either? I mean, you know, these are topics that too often are taboo, and then that only reinforces people in their cultural warrior silos when they think that there's no hope of the other side ever understanding, and there's only a culture of fear and uh, uh, derision with regard to the other side. So it starts with families. Starts with having these conversations. They're not easy. But there's constructive ways to have them, and there are truly ways to disagree better. Yeah, Governor Polis hit it. Uh, we tell people all the time to be curious. Um, ask that magic question. Tell me more about why you why you feel that way, and uh, and then um, and then be be humble, be 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 open, be kind. One of the best things about what we've been working on this disagree better initiative, I, I get messages all the time from people who have said, you know, I haven't talked to my dad about politics in years. I have a brother or a sister. We never talk about this, or we don't even talk. We've stopped talking years ago, and uh, and they said, you know, we've taken these practical tools. Um, it's important to me, and we're re-engaging, and we're having these conversations, and that's the most gratifying piece. Yeah, again, I, I don't pretend that we're going to be able to change a couple governors, change the country overnight, um, but if we can change some individual families and help them have those conversations, then, uh, then, then what we're doing is worth it. And at the end of the day, our elected officials really echo and, and represent the same way that civil society and people in general talk about these issues. And if it breaks down at the family level, how in the world do we expect our elected officials to be able to repair it? So this kind of disagree better concept needs to occur at all levels uh, of civil society. And of course, that means in our families, our friend networks, uh, all the way up through the, all the politicians across the land. Governor Polis, Governor Cox, thanks for joining me. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Colorado's Governor Jared Polis, a Democrat, and Utah's Governor Spencer Cox, a Republican, speaking with my colleague Megan Verlee about disagreeing better. And lawmakers in this state will try to do that very thing in a special session focused on property tax relief. It starts tomorrow, and you can follow its progress on air and online at CPR.org. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado Matters continues into this next half hour as a fifth grader takes my host chair 
to talk about some real control freaks. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Before the Rocky Mountains rose from an ancient ocean, and before that ancient ocean submerged Colorado underwater, there were other mountains here, the ancestral Rocky Mountains. 300 million years ago, with the force of colliding continents driving them upward, these Rockies rose to heights unknown. But then time and erosion wore down those ancestral peaks, grain by grain, until they became the floor of a great interior seaway. The mountains were gone for good, or seemed to be, until another great uplift for a new generation of Rocky Mountains tilted that long calcified seabed upward with it, bringing a trace of the ancestors. The Flatirons, Red Rocks, Garden of the Gods, the Maroon Bells. As an ancient philosopher put it, first there is a mountain, then there is no mountain, then there is. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio, with the support of National Jewish Health. When I was a kid, I enjoyed books about schools, ones that were quirkier than my own, ones with less bullying. Sideways Stories from Wayside School springs to mind. That was an elementary school built mistakenly as a skyscraper. There's Boy Meets Boy, which features a school where queer kids are safe. Well, Denver author J.E. Thomas sets her new middle grade novel, Control Freaks, at a school with a precocious student body and one that's as diverse as America is. The principal has announced a high-stakes, school-wide competition, and the students are in a frenzy. And Jan, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. We read your novel with Della Johnson, a fifth grader at Corey Elementary in Denver. And hello, Della. Hi. I'm glad you're here. Uh, Before we get to Della's questions, Jan, how about we start with a description of the school that you imagine in Control Freaks, Benjamin Banneker College Prep. Yes, Benjamin Banneker College Prep is Colorado's number one school for unusually competitive kids. (laughs) (laughs) So the kids there love to win, they love to try things, and they are fully focused on what it is they want to do when they grow up. I love that it's a school named for the real-life polymath Benjamin Banneker, mathematician, astronomer, writer, abolitionist. Yes. Della, had you heard of Benjamin Banneker before this? No. Okay. Did you know that that was a real-life person? No. A real-life person, indeed. Do you want to say a few words about naming the school after Benjamin Banneker, John? Yes. I wanted to focus on someone who made huge contributions to the country but isn't well-known. So I did some research myself, and Benjamin Banneker jumped right out. As with so many characters, he came to me. And I found a way to incorporate him in the book. Oh, what do you mean he came to you? Um, With some characters, with some people, I feel as though they knock on the door of my imagination and they ask to be part of the book. And Mm. in this case, Benjamin Banneker did that and I opened the door for him. Well, Della, thanks so much for reading the book with me. First off, what did you like about it? I like Doug's friend, um, Huey. He had, like, a very funny personality to me, Uh so I really liked that. Yeah, you know, the kids are competitive, but they're not mean. There's There's a lot of good kids in this book, I think. Do you want to tell us about Huey, Jen? Yes. Huey is 
just a, a really nice kid. He is Doug's best friend. They've been friends since second grade. And maybe tell us who Doug is as well. Oh, your, yes. Your okay. protagonist. Yes. Frederick Douglas Zesmer is a 12-year-old kid who is convinced that he is destined to become the world's greatest inventor. And he has several inventions under his belt already. He does. They don't all work exactly <laughs> the way he planned, but he just has visions for what he'd like to do. Unfortunately, his father is the former wide receiver for the Denver Broncos, and he has a vision for what Doug's future is. A more sportsy future, maybe. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And sports are not Doug's calling. And so we have Doug's friend, Huey. Yes. Who resonated very much with Della. Tell us about Huey. Huey is the quintessential good friend. He's a good kid, but he also has some social anxiety. He'd love to do magic tricks on a stage, but he just can't get himself on the stage to perform. You have brought in a list of questions for Jan. So, mm-hmm. Adela, why don't you just take it away and ask some of your questions? Okay. My first question is, how did you come up with the names for these characters? That's a really good question. Um, some of the names just, again, they just came to me, like Huey Linkmeyer. I don't know exactly where that name came from, though I did go to school with someone whose name rhymed with Linkmeyer, so oh. maybe that's where that came from. But other names like Paget Babineau and T.W., they just popped into my head. My second question is, did Doug's mom let him go to GadgetCon? At the very end? At the very end. Yes. Oh, we're just giving away spoilers here. I know. it's It just sort of slipped in, but I had to answer that question. Yeah. So, so GadgetCon mm-hmm. is sort of the ultimate conference for someone who loves to invent. Yes. And this was a major goal for Doug. It was because he really wanted more than anything else to prove to his father that inventing is just as important as sports. And the only way to avoid going to summer sports camp was to be invited to Rocky Mountain Gadget Con. Gadget Con. Mm-hmm. Have you ever thought about inventing something, Della? Mm-hmm. You have. Would you tell us about that? I thought about inventing with one of my friends that we invented, like, a little house for my dog. What is your dog's name? Rikia. Rikia. And why did Rikia need a, a different kind of home? What made you um, think about inventing a different kind of home? Well, we just thought it would be cute for her laying around and, like, in next to us. So we invented the little house. We put some things in it, and she really liked it. I remember the notion of invention just captivating my imagination as a kid. What do you think that's about, Jen? And I I ask you this partly as author and partly as someone who has helped run a school before. I think the nature of inventing and the fun of inventing is that you see a need that's unmet And then you figure out how to solve that problem, how to create something so the world is better after you finish your creation than it was beforehand. Mm -hmm. And there's such a sense of pride, such a sense of accomplishment that comes from that, that inventing is, it's just the way to go. 
How did your own education career influence the writing of this book? Mm. Great question. So I knew when I was about four years old that I wanted to be a storyteller. That was my goal. I would make up stories. I would daydream. I would write fan fiction, even though I didn't know it was called that at the time. (laughs) But that was not the dream that my parents had for me. And so I followed the path that they had. And in this case, I wrote a story about a boy who convinced his parents to let him follow his own dream. Mm -hmm. Is there another book? Well, there definitely will be another book from me. But I guess the question that you might be asking is, is there a sequel to this book, right? I Do you want a sequel, Della? I want to see what will happen. Yeah. A sequel, like just like a, maybe a mini book. Doesn't have to be like very big. Uh huh. That's a great idea. I will definitely keep that in mind. Should it be a regular book or should it be a graphic novel? Should it? What do you think? I think it should be like a regular book, maybe with a picture or two. Mm-hmm. But like, it, I just don't think it like a, the sequel should be like really sick. Okay. Great. Della is like me. Uh, we found out before we started taping that we both like shorter chapters. Mm-hmm. So I like that we're making requests of you, Jen, <laughs> just specific requests. Well, this is, uh, here's what I will promise you. I will text my editor as soon as we finish, and I will tell him that we have a specific request. <laughs> Speaking of texting, there are chapters in this book. Maybe, maybe you noticed this, Della. That are in text, they're text threads. They're texting. And it's between this character, we've uh, invoked her name, Paget Babineau, and her grandmother. Will you tell me and Della more about writing those chapters? Yes. I wanted to step into the minds of each of the characters, and that meant that the way they presented their stories would be unique to them. Paget has a wonderful relationship with her grandmother, and in fact, she lives with her grandmother, but she doesn't have her own technology. She doesn't have her own phone. She has to do, I think you mean the email chapters, right? Oh, Where, yes, it's email, yes, isn't it? Yes, Because she doesn't have a phone. Right, exactly. So she has to communicate with her grandmother via email, and that's how we see a different side of this girl who is really kind of scary to the other students. And I think that what it conveys is the economic diversity in a particular school and the economic hardship and the fact that this young woman is worried and clearly taking care of her grandmother to some extent. Exactly. It's about the responsibilities that are on some kids' shoulders. Exactly, exactly. And even in a school that has as many resources as Benjamin Banneker College Prep, there are still some students who attend who are facing economic hardship. And I wanted to make sure that we saw those kids. Della, what responsibilities do you have? I'm just curious. What do you mean? Well, I don't know. What are your chores? or Like, I have a responsibility. I have to take care of my hamsters, uh-huh. both of them. So you have dogs and hamsters. I have four pets, two dogs, two hamsters. Okay. And so the understanding was if you were going to have pets, you had to take care of them. Yeah, so I have two hamsters that I had to take care of um, every single day. I had to check their food and water. I had to make sure they're healthy. And you have to keep their... Their cages clean, I guess. Mm-hmm. 
I had fish as a kid, and keeping the fish tank clean was always a pain in the you-know-what. Have you had fish? Yeah, I had three fish, and they all died. Okay. Well. For the same reason. I didn't feed them, I didn't feed them, and I didn't feed them. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Which of the characters do you think grew the most from the beginning of the book to the end, or changed the most? Mm. I want to say either the father that he was arguing with or uh, probably the mom. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I agree with you. I think Doug's dad changed the most, the football player. Yeah, the former Bronco. Yes, exactly. And also his stepbrother changed quite a bit as well. His stepbrother was enrolled at a different school. Yes. And desperately wanted to get into Benjamin Banneker. Or at least his family desperately wanted him in Benjamin Banneker. And I think that that character sets up the tension between academics and sports. Is that a tension? Does it always have to be a tension, Jan? I mean, I say that as someone who wasn't particularly athletically inclined as a kid, you know. I don't think it has to be attention, but it definitely was for me. People assumed that I would be very good in modern dance. I was not. Then they thought I would be great in tennis. I was not. Then they thought maybe track. No. And then um, finally, when I was in ninth grade, I was very short in ninth grade. I was mm. only about five, two. Uh -huh. And they thought, well, maybe gymnastics. But then I had a growth spurt, so that ended that as well. Um, so I don't think there has to be attention. It's just important to know that you can do both if you want to, or you can do one or the other if that's what you're so inclined to do. And it might be. Like me, you're interested in academics as a kid, and eventually the notion of exercise takes hold Right. Later in life. Yes. So, Della, are you particularly athletic or particularly academically minded? How would you describe yourself at school? Um, I'm very athletic. Okay. And I think I have a very much open mind. I think you had mentioned to me before we started taping that math was your favorite subject. Yep. Yeah, I'm jealous of that. I was never very good at math. What sports do you do? I do soccer. And I do aerial silks, which I'm not sure if that's a sport, but... Oh, I think aerial silks is a sport. Yeah. Anytime uh, yeah. you've looked, it's certainly athletic. Well, here's Della just um, doing both academics and athletics, Jan. Exactly. She's got it, us beat, yes, I guess. definitely. Any definitely. more questions on that uh, sheet of yours, Della? Yes. One of the questions I'm very much wondering about is, what's your favorite part of the book? Oh, that's yeah. a really good question as well. So there are two that I really like. Mm. One is when Doug and his stepdad, Julius, go home after taking Doug's mom to the airport and they meet Mr. Cohen for the first time. And Doug remembers how the family interacted with Mr. Cohen during the pandemic and they invited him to come live with them. This was an act of kindness. It was. In a pandemic. Yes. To have someone who was otherwise lonely and solitary find company. Mm -hmm. 
Exactly. And I think it's so important to, whenever possible, show the humanity in humanity. Mm. And that was something that I really tried to do in this scene. Sometimes, and this really surprised me, sometimes in writing, you can get so immersed in a scene that your emotions are tied up to what's happening. Mm -hmm. Every time I would read that scene during proofing, I would just get teary. Because it brought back that sense that there really are good people and this is what kindness looks like. And it was like creating a pod, right? Like mm-hmm. saying, we're all going to try to be safe together. Yes. And and provide you some company. Yes. Okay. Exactly. And then let's see, I think you had a second favorite in answer to Della. Um, <laughs> yes. I really liked the scene where... All the kids were trying to get their catapults across the lake because they were trying so hard and they were trying so many different things and they were really kind of bad at it. But it was so funny. Yes. Let's remind ourselves that at the heart of this book is a school-wide competition. And there are all sorts of challenges. Some of them are digital programming. Some of them are physical. Like catapulting things across a school lake. Exactly right. I I wanted to make these have really unusual challenges, not the traditional STEM challenges, but things that would show that kids absorbed the theory and the practice of what they were learning. So I tried to come up with really weird competitions. <laughs> STEM, of course, science, technology, engineering, and math. I have another question. How did you get in the mindset of a middle schooler? <laughs> um, that <laughs> So there are a couple of ways I can answer that one. One is I took a class, a writing class, when I was trying to figure out what kind of voice I would use and what kind of story I would write. And my instructor at the time said that we write based on our emotional age which in my case apparently was 12. (laughs) So I was able to slip right into that. And then also because I was working at a school for so many years, I would see kids. And um, I think one thing about writers is that we are observers. So we'll we'll just look and see what's happening, Mm. but we don't really say a lot. So I was able to watch kids and that's it. Why might you be stuck at 12? Did you like that age? That is a very good question. I don't think I did, really. I think when I was 12, I wanted to be older, but I just sort of stuck there. Hmm. How old are you, Della? I'm 10. You're 10. Be interesting to see what age you might get stuck at. Do you like to write, by the way? I like writing a little bit. What sort of writing do you do? Mostly for school? I do mostly creative writing. And uh, I also do some writing for school. It's nice to hear. Very nice to hear. What kind of creative writing do you do? I use a lot of dialogue and I write little stories. Excellent. Excellent. Screenwriter. Screenwriter. Mm -hmm. All right. You could write for movies, basically, is what Jen is saying there. Della has one more question before we go. What did you enjoy about writing this book? 
I loved the process. I loved setting a goal of doing something that I had always wanted to do and finishing it. Mm. But ironically, there's this process in writing a book that's editing where you turn in your manuscript and then your editor sends back feedback and then you rewrite. And then that process continues. We do that a couple of times. I mean, writing a book is like writing five books, right? Because it's different iterations and edits and drafts and rewrites. Yes. And I loved that. Oh, I I know. I'm surprised. I would hate. Really? I did. What did you love about that? I loved continuing to see the book through someone else's eyes. And I was extremely fortunate. I have a fantastic editor. So he kept polishing, working with me to polish the book and make it better. But what he didn't do was to try to change the book into his book. He wanted it to be the best book I envisioned versus the best book someone else envisioned. So because of that sensitivity that he brought to the process, I loved it. That's a good editor, isn't it? Very good. Della, your questions have been just remarkable. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You're welcome. And Jen, thank you so much for writing Control Freaks. Thank you so much for having me here. This has been wonderful. Della Johnson, fifth grader at Denver's Corey Elementary, read Control Freaks with me, and together we spoke with its author, J.E. Thomas of Denver. Thanks for spending time with us, and thanks to my fellow control freaks. Tyler Bender, Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. 